Well, church, this morning we are going to be talking about making peace in conflict. Making peace in conflict. Because I don't think it's a, a surprise to you, your families, your relationships, your workplaces have conflict. Do they not? I thought so. Looking at this crowd, it seemed likely. You know, I hate to make the news even worse, but uh, even Christians have conflict with each other. Did you know? Even Christians have conflict in social media, at family gatherings, like maybe you'll even have this week in the office. We have conflict because we're different to one another than one another. We have conflict because we've made different parenting decisions than the other family there. Or, or we have conflict because, you know, they exist and it's before noon. And so we couldn't help ourselves. We shouldn't be surprised when God's community, when God's family has conflict. But we also shouldn't be a bystander to it either. Don't be surprised by conflict in God's family, but don't be a bystander either. That's a premise behind what we're going to see in God's word today. Because I believe if we're not prepared to be peacemakers, to make peace in relationship in the family of God, then we are prepared to be defaming God who made peace with us and between us. So we need to be ready to make peace. For your conflict, that's your fault and you started. For your conflict that someone else started and they're to blame for. And for a conflict that isn't even yours but is in your spiritual family. We need to be prepared to make peace. Today we're going to see two people, Onesimus and Philemon, and we're going to understand that they were Jesus followers. They belonged to, as we sang earlier, the Jesus way. And yet, in order to resolve their conflict, they needed a third person, a peacemaker, to step in between the two of them. And you can go ahead and find your way over to the book of Philemon right now so we can get ready for that. It's a tiny book. There's not even chapters, just a collection of verses. It's right before the book of Hebrews. See, Onesimus and Philemon needed someone who was willing to step into the middle of their mess and bring them together. Because God's community is better because of peacemakers. God's community is better because of peacemakers. God's community needs people who aren't bystanders to conflict. God has called his church to be people who make peace. So we're going to see in this book of Philemon that Paul really ends up leveraging this letter in a way that for us becomes in some ways, a how-to guide in order to make peace. It's a four-step how-to guide in order to make peace. And there's some theological truths that support it all beneath that. And as we get ready to look at that, I should note something as we begin. Church, as we talk about making peace and relationships, there are some situations I want to acknowledge and agree with there are some situations that need a different approach. If your conflict is abusive, 
is dangerous, then these principles don't apply in the same way as I'm going to share them today. Don't take what we're going to see in God's Word today as prescriptive for how you ought to handle a relationship for you or a conflict for you which is abusive, which is dangerous. Seek help before seeking peace. That's the right call. And frankly, we'd love to be the people you could call before going about finding a way to make peace in that dangerous conflict. And maybe I ought to note this too. It might be that by God's grace today, you realize as we look at making peace in relationships that you are the reason why someone else has a conflict which is dangerous for them, that you have been the abuser, the abusive party in that relationship, in this conflict. And I want to say the same thing for you. If that's what you realize by God's grace today, seek help before seeking to make peace in Taking that step to bring in accountability, a third party, you may very well bring more oversight and more transparency and confidence to that process and enable a better result in the end. So those notes made, let's look at the book of Philemon, starting in verse 1. It says this, Paul, he's introducing himself, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church and your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul introduces himself as a letter of this author, uh, of this letter, alongside Timothy, and he introduces who he's primarily writing to, Philemon. This letter is addressed to him, but Paul acknowledges that this is uh, a letter that really belongs to the church that meets in Philemon's house. And so he's acknowledging some of the other people, the sisters and brothers he knows and loves and cares for and are influential there at the house church meeting in Philemon's house. And right away, before we even get past the introduction, we can see what can be the first step for us and how to make peace. Because to make peace, we have to access within pre-existing community. You make peace first by accessing within community. We see already at the beginning here that Paul has an obvious relationship with Philemon, doesn't he? He knows Philemon. He calls him a beloved fellow worker. And he seems to know the church there that Philemon has in his house intimately. He knows these people. He cares for these people. He loves these people. He's accessing to make peace within pre-existing relationship and community. He's not trolling Philemon on Facebook. He's not lobbing truth bombs, even though he doesn't even know who this guy is. Because access to make peace is granted by having been in relationship with somebody in the first place, isn't it? I mean, you all know this intimately. As I say this out loud, you're like, well, yeah, of course, that that makes sense. I just know that from life experience. When life gets hard, when conflict arises, if there isn't a pre-existing relationship there, it's so difficult to find a peaceful solution to that. It's so hard to help. But when there's somebody already in your life who knows you, who you trust, who you love, that relationship has all sorts of power and influence in making a difference and you being able to navigate the nuances of resolving the conflict. Parents in the room, 
Your kids are sitting with you, perhaps. This is one reason why kids' ministry, why student ministry here matters so much. The reason you ought to make it a commitment to be here every Sunday, to have your student in verge at every gathering, because access to influence in your student's life and your kid's life is most likely to happen from a pre-existing community. And what's true for kids and students is also true for us as the grown-ups in the room. We always need community. God created us for community. We need it. But sometimes we fall for a lie. Right? We, we fall for this lie so easily, so often, and the lie is this. You know, like, I know I need community. Like, okay, I've heard this a thousand times. But I don't need it right now. You know, I just, this isn't the right time for me because I'm busy. Or you know what? Honestly, I'm fine. I'm thriving right now. Or you know what? I'm just high maintenance. I'll just admit it. I'm high, ma- I'm high maintenance. I don't want community. It's kind of a problem for me. Because I'm kind of the problem for it. Whatever our reasons, we believe that lie. But get this. We engage in community in seasons where it doesn't feel like we need it so that we have community when that season shifts. And doesn't that season always shift? We engage in community in seasons where it doesn't feel like it, we're fine, we don't need it right now, because one day that season will be different, and we'll need it. And if we've waited until then, it's too late. It's so hard to help, unless you have pre-existing community. I think about the landscaping you've worked on so hard on this season so far. You've had to do extra work on, because it hasn't been raining enough this spring, that's now turned to summer. Praise the Lord for a uh, weekend with rain. And a thousand percent humidity. Man, it was swimming yesterday. But as you planted your new landscaping this year, as you were caring for your existing landscaping, you know that your plants were in a sprint in the spring season because the gentle rain and the soft sunshine and warmth doesn't last forever. Plants have to get their roots down deep in the good seasons because soon August will be here and I'll be hotter than anything. And drier than everything. And if they don't have that great, deep, healthy root system already, they're not going to survive the season. And you're going to pay a fortune in watering them. Well, peacemakers are like that. They come from relationships who have done the work in the good times, in the easy seasons, and are there and ready for the bad seasons. They've already done the work of building trust. And so I think we all have to ask ourselves, are are we in that small group? Are we in that community? Would my calendar say that I value spiritual community? Do my kids know their verge leader? Have I had them over for s'mores lately or a, a gathering around the dinner table so that we can be investing in this relationship so we can have it when the seasons get harder? Are you investing your life into one of those roles to be one of those leaders in one of those communities for when 260 kids are registered for VBS, you're there to create environments and relationships so that peace can be known between Jesus and between each other? 
Being a peacemaker starts by accessing within community. That's where Paul starts. But how does he create peace? He goes on to to take a first step in verse 4. He says this. Listen to his tone and what he says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Wait a second. Isn't he writing this to somebody who's got a problem? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Not like sometimes, but lately less so. Always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is for us in that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now I'm confused by this. Because there's a problem to solve. The life of somebody, Onesimus, who we haven't even heard about yet, literally hangs in the balance in some ways here. And here Paul is addressing Philemon in these glowing terms with such beautiful kindness. And that's our second step. Not only to make peace do we need to access from within relationship, within community, but second of all, we approach to create peace with kindness. Paul here approached with kindness. Paul leads with love, with gratitude, acknowledging all the things about Philemon that are good. All the ways he's refreshed by him and blessed by him. Instead of coming to Philemon with a list of all the ways he's messed up so far. Like, dude, this house is in your, this church is in your house. You got to get your act together, man. You're looking sloppy. You got these problems that are coming all the way over to me. I'm on another country right now. Writing you this letter, I've got other things I ought to be doing. I'm Paul for crying out loud. No, he addresses Philemon in love. And love is kind. Love always hopes. Paul wrote that one by the Spirit. He ought to know. He spends time encouraging Philemon. And maybe even reminding himself, Paul, I need to remember this about this dude about who Philemon is in Christ, the new creation reality about who God has gifted him and enabled him and leading him to become. Paul knew Philemon to be a man marked by love and faith in Jesus. He knew Philemon was generously refreshing to the church that gathered in his house. And so Paul speaks to all that Philemon could be in Christ when he's addressing this problem. When's the last time someone spoke to you like that, about you, about all of who you could be in Christ, all about how God has been at work in and through you through time? You remember that forever, don't you? How different we can be, though, when someone hurts us. Instantly in that moment, it's almost like all the shared history we've ever had with them is out the window. And now the only thing that matters is you hurt me. Or you hurt them, and now you're going to pay. In fact, all that shared history, I'm going to use against you right now. Watch me. We tend to focus on the hurt at hand. 
What Paul does here, though, makes me think about what James has to say by inspiration of the Spirit when he says that everyone should be slow to become angry because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Man. Imagine how much healthier all of our relationships would be if when we're hurt by someone, we slowed down our reaction time and took the time to list out exhaustively everything that person has ever done, everything that's true about them in God through Christ. And then approach them on the basis of those things. Here's the scenario. In this pretend make-believe scenario that never happens, your spouse does something that angers you or your friend or your co-worker and you're ready to let them have it but first okay we're trying to follow Paul's example of approaching kindness you compile an exhaustive list of all the things that are true about them in Christ all the wonderful things that are true about them when they're walking in the spirit who they are at their very best and so you come to them and you say okay bro sis babe you're sacrificial I see that you're kind. You're always putting others first. For 37 years, you have been practicing wonderful personal hygiene. Very thankful for that. You set the example for our family in prayer. And oh boy, do I love you and I enjoy your company. Honestly, you make me want to be more like Jesus. But it does bother me when you're late. And listen, that isn't manipulation. That is good theology. Because who are fellow believers in Christ except new creations? That is our identity. That is who we are. We are not who we were. We are new in Christ. So we address each other as if that's so. You know, we've all heard of the compliment sandwich, right? A little bit of a misnomer in the name. You compliment them, something nice, something wonderful, and then you let them know what's up, but then you give them a hug and say something nice at the end, right? The compliment sandwich, classic approach for confronting somebody about something or solving something or calling out something about someone. Evidently, Paul doesn't feel like a compliment sandwich is nourishing enough for the body of Christ. That sandwich is looking a little bit like a slider, and my boy's hungry. So Paul comes and says, what we need here as a new creation in Christ, smorgasbord. We need a new identity in Jesus, feast. That's what we're going to give to each other. Paul is helping Philemon to see who he is as a new creation. It's like he's saying, Philemon, every time I come across your name, I say, oh God, thank you. I keep hearing of your love and the faith that you have for Jesus, which brims over to other believers. Friend, you have no idea how good your love makes me feel, especially when you refresh your fellow believers. An approach in kindness like this, doesn't Philemon now have the chance to want to be that person? It's like, who's that? I want to be him. Paul's like, that's who you are, man. Let's start acting like it in a second. To be a peacemaker, approach in kindness. Approach in awareness of their spiritual reality and possibility in Christ. Third step we see is coming up soon. 
But I want to give another example. Because one of the most famous peacemakers I can think of in the story of the Bible is a woman named Abigail. Abigail, you can read the whole story in 1 Samuel 25. She met this not yet but soon to be King David in a moment of conflict for him. See, David had been wronged by a foolish man named Nabal. And David got pretty ticked about this. And he told his band of merry soldiers, put on your swords, boys. We're going to go kill everybody. And they were happy to comply. They all got armed for battle. They were marching double time to Nabal's place. And Abigail hears about how foolish her husband has been, how stupid he had been, and the mistake he's made. And she decides she wants to step in the middle of this and be a peacemaker. She doesn't want to die. She doesn't think her family needs to die because of her husband's foolishness. So she sends a band of food and gifts ahead of time, ahead of herself to David's men, which snacks truly do solve most conflicts. There's rich theology here. She sends food ahead of herself. And then, just after the food's gotten there and they've felt a little better after receiving this, she approaches David. And this is what she says, essentially. Praise God. God has restrained you from murder and from taking things into your own hands. Which is kind of Abigail and bold of her, because that is precisely what David is intending to do if she would just get out of his way. But she continues, and I'm paraphrasing. She says, please forgive this wrong, David, for the Lord will certainly make you king one day because you are fighting the battles of the Lord and you aren't choosing evil. Do you hear all this kindness she's saying to David, even though he's in the middle of trying to not do all those things? And she says this, when the Lord has made you king, David, you won't have a guilty conscience because you'd murdered and you had worked things by your own power and hand. Wow. This woman stepped in front of a warrior with blood in his eyes with kindness about who he was and who he could be. She gave David an opportunity to see that when this story was nothing but a story that was told, it could be a good story. And it worked. David realized, oh man, what was I about to do? He packed up, turned around, and left. And you can read... Literally, when Nabal hears about what almost happened, dude dies of horror and shock. And David finds out about that and fetches Abigail and marries that woman because she was a peacemaker who could be approaching people in kindness. He's like, that is someone I want to be around. That's the power of taking Paul's approach here, taking God's approach to making peace. The third step, though, we see in Philemon, verse 8. Where you engage the mess at hand. You're accessing within community. You're approaching with kindness. And then you engage the mess. You have to step into it at some point, right? And Paul does. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you. For my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Because formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he's useful to you and me. And I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Finally, Paul engages the mess. He steps into the situation and we hear, after all these verses, finally, why he's writing this letter in the first place. He's writing about Onesimus. 
And it's clear right away there's conflict here, and, and it's a messy situation. See, evidently, Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. But Onesimus left. And Onesimus is now a believer. And Paul evidently had something to do with his conversion. He calls him his spiritual son. And now Onesimus is willing to go back to Philemon and make things right. Now we have to note, we don't have time to get into it, but this passage, this letter, Paul is not intending to try to justify slavery. That's not the point in this letter. In fact, we can see clearly through the canon of Scripture that any ownership of human being, any abuse of a human being, is a clear violation of God's creation and image in each person. It's a moral evil, maybe even most expressively so in our own nation's history of chattel slavery. That is not what Paul is talking about here. There's a lot going on. This is a messy situation. Culturally, slavery was often a debt-related service with someone. And maybe in this period of service, Onesimus has stolen something from Philemon as he escaped. We don't really know the details. But Onesimus is now a new man in Christ. And he feels that he's treated Philemon poorly. He's confided in Paul about what he should do. And he's willing to go back. And Paul, out of a a love, a law of love, wants to give Philemon the chance to do what's right here. He wants to attempt reconciliation. And so Paul is making a strong appeal to Philemon that both he and Onesimus ought to operate towards each other out of the debt the gospel demands on their life. And this is gutsy of Paul. I mean, Paul doesn't, he's not naive. He doesn't think that Onesimus is going to show up at Philemon's doorstep with this letter and maybe a bouquet of flowers, and they're just going to be like, dude, bro, high five. Like, everything's cool now. He knows human nature doesn't work like that. So often, we respond and react and behave out of our old selves, out of an allegiance to sin instead of an obedience to our God and King. So Paul leans his whole heart into this mess. He reminds both parties what the gospel ought to say about how they behave. And he puts all his chips on the table. Because peacemakers approach people with kindness and they move towards the conflict. Towards the messy situation. Even when there's not a clear winner. Even when there's going to be fallout. Even when it's their marriage after all and you warned them in the first place. Even when my own past isn't perfect there, I don't feel like I have the right to say anything. Peacemakers engage the mess. Because what peacemakers really see is the beauty and the worth of God in it all. What they really see is the beauty and the worth of God. See, you won't engage a mess if you're ruled by anything else than the glory of God and a love for him. It's too risky. I'm not going to create a mess in my schedule. I don't want to mess up an evening of summertime bonfires and Netflix. I don't, I don't want to get in the middle of something here. I, I'm insecure about my relationships in the first place. I want people to like me. I'm serving that identity. You know, when we are beholden to anything else, we will not engage the messes. But when our hearts desire is holy the love of God and the worth and glory of God. His kingdom and will become primary in our life, 
And we can engage any mess, any conflict, because God's kingdom and God's glory and God's name are worth it to us. Your fear over losing that friendship loses its power. Your own agenda goes out the window. Because remember, we aren't, we aren't peacekeeping. We're peacemaking. Be a peacemaker by engaging the mess. By being all about Jesus, all about him. Not all about the easiest way out of this problem. Paul is all about the glory and fame of his God. So he leans into the mess and he makes his ask. We can see it in the second half of verse 15. He says to Philemon about Onesimus, Have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul wants Philemon and Onesimus to be in one true spiritual community with each other again. Reconciled, at peace, honoring each other. And he goes on to make it clear that he will bear any cost that is incurred to make that happen. In verse 18 he says, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you, Philemon, at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing even yourself. Owing me even yourself. Paul bears the cost of making peace between these brothers in Christ. And that's the last step, the fourth step we see in being a peacemaker. It's bearing the cost. Bearing the cost. And, and it's interesting, Paul acknowledges he even has some leverage on Philemon somehow. He's like, I won't bring up the fact that, you know what, never mind, I'm going to bring it up. You owe me, dude! But nope, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to bank on that. I'm not calling that favor in. Instead, I want you to know I will pay for anything this reconciliation costs you. He says, I write this with my own hand. Like if you're reading the original letter, the handwriting would change because Paul stopped dictating the letter, picked up the pen from the person he had writing it for him, and writes this part in his own handwriting. He wants to communicate. He really means this. Sometimes to be a peacemaker... There's a price we have to be willing to pay. There's a thing we have to be willing to let go. There's a way we have to be willing to lose. Because reconciliation implies that someone, somewhere, has been wronged. And you need a third party. Someone to come in and mediate peace to make up the difference. And that's what Paul does. But that's crazy, right? This isn't Paul's problem. This isn't Paul's debt. And Paul had studied the Jewish law. He knew what the price for a wrong was. It was an eye for an eye, a price for a wrong, but not his eye, not his bank account. What was Paul doing here? Who taught him this way of living? What is this way that he's operating under now? What's well, the Jesus way? Jesus taught Paul this. Paul had written about it himself in Galatians 2 when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me in the life. I, now in the live, I live now in the flesh. How do I live it? I live it by faith in who? The Son of God. And what did he do for me? Who loved me and gave himself for me. 
since Jesus had given himself for Paul, Paul reasons, well, my life is his now. My life is lost to me already now. I'm willing to give you of my life, of my bank account, in the same way that Jesus gave me of his life, a way for me to have peace with him. To make peace, Paul was willing to follow Jesus' example and bear the cost himself. And it's frustrating because we don't know what happened. We don't know how this got resolved. We don't get Philemon 2, second Philemon's. We don't know. Paul seemed pretty confident. He, he went on to say in verse 21, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you'll do even more than I say. He was sure of it, but we don't really know how this played out, which, which makes me think, do you ever wonder if Paul decided one day, you know what, people are messy, my life would be a whole lot simpler if I just didn't anymore, no more with people, right, just wash my hands of the whole thing. Maybe that's been your strategy at times and in seasons. You know what? That's cool. I'm glad they promote that. I'm glad that thing's happening. Praise the Lord for it. <clears throat> Over there. <laughs> because, <clears throat> no, 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 no. That's, people are messy. No thanks. Church, you're right. People are messy. And community is still worth it. Still worth it. People are messy, and reconciliation then between those people is a God-glorifying gift that we do in obedience to him. We have to be willing to get our hands dirty, stand between our spiritual family who can't see eye to eye, and bring them together. And Bethel, the platform we have primarily to allow this to happen, our plan to get you out of this crowd and into a messy community is small groups. It's our groups that gather here for community and care and for growth. And these groups may look different in different seasons. Maybe it's a, a steps community or a table at Women of the Word or it's gathered in someone's living room with married people and family people and single people. Whatever the season looks like, our small group community is how we get into a place where we can be messy in order to be God-glorifying in order to have community ahead of time when we'll need it. And this summer, we've got lots of opportunities to engage in that. We talked about some of them. You can go onto our events page or our groups page to see how you might take a next step into those relationships. Because God's, glory, God's community is amazing. But yes, maybe what we say less often is that God's community is messy. Even ours. <laughs> And so to be in that community requires us to be peacemakers. Sometimes being a peacemaker means giving up a room in your house for someone else who needs a chance to get back on their feet and into those relationships again. Or giving up an evening consistently so that you can be hosting that environment. Or giving up some of your time and investing in a relationship that really isn't working for you, but you know that sister needs it. Community is messy, so God's community is better because of peacemakers. And that matters because this community was designed by God in the first place. This community was God's idea. He desires that we love each other. 
that we share a common unity that we talked about last week. And so, my Christian community here, how could it be that we would ever tolerate disinterested marriages? Are we aware that we need to overcome these problems because we have a spiritual, if you're both in Christ, unity that we are to be making peace between? Or, or how could we tolerate distant parents who are willing to allow a trivial season to overcome their call to make peace between the family of God? Or favoritism, or partiality, or cutthroat co-work environments. On and on the list of conflicts could go. That should not be because this community was designed by God. We fight for the peace, for love, and for unity with others because the believers seated in this room with us right now, or maybe living in your home, driving in your vehicle as you leave today, in Christ God has united you to them. And that was God's idea, his design. So peace here matters. John Calvin wrote this. It would be a sign of haughty pride in us if we should be ashamed to call brothers and sisters those God has called sons and daughters. Isn't that right? God has called you in Christ his sons and his daughters. Therefore, who am I to think anything other than you than as sisters and brothers with the warmest regards and in peacemaking love? God's community is better because of peacemakers, because it's designed by God, because it was established by God. It was established by God himself. Jesus was our peacemaker to God. At the cost of his life, Colossians 1.19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated or hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a God that he reconciled us to him. And having been reconciled, do we see him and regard him and love him and adore him in such a way that we are eager and willing then to extend that same peace at whatever cost to those God has also reconciled to himself? Church, what a joy that we get to be peacemakers. I invite you to be a peacemaker in your own conflict. When it comes up between our church family, let's be in community. Let's move towards people with kindness. Let's be unafraid of the mess and be willing to bear the cost. Because in Christ, you've been given peace with God. Let's glorify that God. Let's adore that God. Let's see him as worthy enough to be peacemakers ourselves.